Well, turn in, the, in your Bibles tonight, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. This is out of the New King James Version of Scripture. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy to open and read the scroll or, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls, uh, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, open the eyes of our understanding, dear Lord. Help us to see you afresh and anew. Help us to catch a vision of the risen Lord. We're so thankful, God, for the suffering Savior of Calvary. We're so grateful for the resurrected Christ of Easter. But Lord, help us to catch a vision of the one who holds the times in his hands, who is in charge and in control, and help us to be strengthened by that vision in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise tonight for his word. Amen. I can see him in my mind's eye on what to me would seem like a chilly morning on a rock out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. Perhaps his bed had been a simple rock cliff. I can see him getting up probably in his late 80s, trying to stretch out his arms, reaching a an aged and weathered hand back to the small of his back and trying his best to experience the snap, crackle, and pop that you have to do in the mornings to get going. Stiff and sore. He was old and he was lonely. He knew it was Sunday morning and back on the mainland, back at Ephesus, Every time that he walked in the congregation, every head turned and every eye was on every movement that he made. There was always a hushed whisper when he came into a room. I think that 
fathers would wrap their arms around their sons and squeeze them tight and say, look at him, he's the last of his kind. I think that maybe wives would elbow their husbands and say, wake up, John's here. He was the last remaining apostle. All the rest of them, according to tradition, had given their lives for the gospel. He was the last one. They had tried to take his life, tradition tells us. They had dipped him in boiling oil. But according to the the tradition surrounding him, he would not burn. He would not boil. The Lord spared him. Back at Ephesus, he was at home. And when he spoke, People would cup their ears and lean in to hear what the last remain. The disciple whom Jesus loved, the one that leaned on his chest during the Last Supper. They would crane in to hear what he had to say. That was back at Ephesus. But here was John in exile. Here he was in prison. He was on the Alcatraz of his day. He was far away from the comfort of home, from the fellowship of the redeemed, from the love of those who surrounded him. It was Sunday and how he must have longed to want to be in the congregation of the righteous. And yet instead he was out on this rock prison in the middle of the Aegean Sea. But I think that John made a decision that day. I think he realized it's Sunday morning, it's the Lord's day. And I might not can get to church, but that doesn't keep me from having church. And the Bible says, John's own testimony, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. When he looked around at his surroundings and his circumstances, they were depressing. They were discouraging. They were disheartening. But instead, he turned his eyes toward the heaven. When what was going on in the earth was too much for him to bear, he decided to look and see what was going on in heaven. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I received a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation is the word apocalypsis, and it's where we get the word apocalypse from. And that's usually used as, a, as some type of a warning of the of the. Uh, strange and severe things that are coming on the earth. But what it really means is the unveiling. If you can imagine gathering down here at the courthouse, if there were a new statue of Charlie Davis being (laughs) revealed at the county courthouse down here, and the mayor was there, and the dignitaries were there, and the governors were there, and senators were there, and a brass band was there playing a fanfare, and... No one knew, no one could see what that statue was going to be because there was a a, a thick, coarse covering over it. And after all the speeches had been made, 
And all of the preliminaries were over. And it came time for somebody to pull the cord and loose the knot. And for that, uh, that covering, that veil to fall away and reveal that statue. That's what happened to John. He was about to see Jesus like he had never seen him before. Now, I can't always see what's right in front of me. Anybody ever have that problem? Has anybody ever searched for the house, tore the house apart, searching for your keys that you were holding in your hand? Anybody? Come on, you can admit it. If you, about a year ago, I have a bad habit a lot of times of taking off my glasses and putting them on the seat. And then, I, you know, I'll stop short and they'll fall in the floorboard and I can't find them. And so I reached over as I was leaving the house to come to the church. I, I reached over and my glasses were not in the seat. So I looked down in the floorboard. They were not there. So I looked in the driver's side floorboard. They were not there. I finally pulled over. I got out and went around to the other side of my vehicle. And I looked in the floorboard, looked under the seat, looked in the back seat, under the back seat. I looked, I went back around. I looked under the driver's side seat, driver's side floorboard, back seat on the driver's side under there. I was pulling things out. I could not find my glasses anywhere. And then I caught a glimpse of myself in one of the, one of the windows. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I have my glasses up here, aren't you? No, you're wrong. I was looking through my glasses while I was searching for my glasses. And I want you to know there are times that we cannot see what's right in front of us. We are so blinded by the things of life, life that we cannot see what's in front of us. So when John saw him was important. He saw him when he was on Patmos. He saw him when things were not going well. He saw him in the middle of his despair. He saw him in the middle of his problems. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about Jacob, how he was on the run from Esau and he was out in the wilderness and he even had to make a, a, a stone his pillow and he went to sleep and he dreamed of that ladder that was going up to heaven and when he woke up he said surely the Lord was here and I did not even know it. You remember Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died he said I saw also the Lord high and lifted up in his train fit the temple and now it was John's time whenever things were not going my way when I was was lonely, when I was cold, when I was sick, when I was imprisoned, when I was in exile, when I was away from the family of God, when I could not help myself, it was in that moment that I saw the Lord. And I'm going to tell you that there are things that happen to us in trouble that we see things about the Lord we had never seen before because when he saw him was not only important, it was how he saw him. If anybody on earth should have known him, it was John. John knew him. We think that the apostle John was a disciple, a follower of John the Baptist. 
And perhaps the first time he had ever seen Jesus was when he was there with John the Baptist who was baptizing beyond Jordan. And while he was there, up walked Jesus. And John the baptizer saw Jesus. Now we don't know how often, if at all, they had seen each other in their growing up years. What we do know is they had met one time before. John the Baptist, when he was in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, and Jesus, when he was in the womb of his mother Mary, Mary and Elizabeth met, and the power of the unborn Jesus, meeting the unborn John the Baptist, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb and leapt for joy. And I believe John, John is a strange, he's an enigmatic character to us. He, I, I get the feeling that John was obeying what he knew, but I think he kind of lived almost in a fog. He didn't really understand what his purpose was. He just understood to obey. He knew he was the forerunner of Messiah, but he didn't know who Messiah was. But whenever the Baptist saw Jesus walk up on the shores of the Jordan, that same spirit that moved on him in his mother's womb moved on him once again. And he said, that's him. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And John the apostle left off following John the Baptist and started following Jesus. And boy, he was there when he opened blinded eyes. He was there when he turned the water into wine. He was there when he unstopped deaf ears. He was there when he made the lame to walk again. He was there whenever he raised the dead. He was there when Jesus walked on the water. He was there when he stood up and spoke to the winds and waves and said, peace be still. He was there. Whenever Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, he had seen him in all kinds of ways. Can you imagine sleeping around the campfire with Jesus and looking across the campfire and seeing the Son of God in the glow of the fire? He saw him in all kinds of ways. He saw him in popularity. He saw him in opposition. He even saw him in obscurity. He saw him and he knew him. And he saw things that some of the rest of the apostles never saw. He saw Jesus when he went up high on a mountain and he was transfigured and began to shine like the noonday sun so that he said, I beheld his glory as of the only begotten son. And as I've said, he leaned on his chest on his last night on earth. And John, the only one now, John followed him to the foot of the cross and saw him hanging and dying for the sins of humanity. John had even seen him on that first resurrection morning. He saw him alive. But John had never seen him like he was about to see him. As well as he knew him, as much as he thought he knew about him, the picture that he had in his mind of him, he didn't think there were any surprises left. 
But now in the middle of his trouble, in the middle of Patmos, he looked and he said, I saw him. And when I saw him, he had hair white as wool. He had fire shooting out of his eyes. He had feet like brass. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And I heard his voice, that voice that I'd heard so many times, that voice that I'd heard teach the multitudes, I heard that voice, but that voice was now like the voice of many waters. And what he was saying was, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I am the one who was dead, and behold, I live forevermore. That's the one that he saw. It's kind of like Job said. When Job went through his trouble at the end of it, and God finally showed up and spoke to him, didn't answer any of his questions. It's amazing. Job had boasted about all the things he wanted to pin God to the wall about. All of the questions that he was going to demand an answer from. And then when he finally saw God, he said, I'm going to shut my mouth. But then he said this, I'd heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. I know that we are living in desperate times. We are, listen, it's not somehow a lack of faith to recognize that we are in troubled times. Faith does not look at the times and pretend like that everything's rosy. Faith looks at the circumstances and situations and says as bad as it might look, there's still a God in heaven. And that God is my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my faith is in Him. And you're not going to know Him until you go through some hard times. Is there anybody here ever been through some problems? Anybody ever been through some dark times? Anybody ever felt isolated and, and ostracized and, and put out and exiled and you, you didn't feel like anybody could help you and you felt like God was a million miles away and all of a sudden the Spirit of God come on you and caused the, the blinders to come off your eyes and you look up and you see that Jesus is still in control. Amen. Pastor Aaron's been doing a great job teaching the, the youth on Wednesday night out of the book of Revelation. And the other night I tuned in and saw where he taught here on Sunday night about the book of Revelation. Many people contacted me about such a great job that he did and I saw what he did, wonderful job. And one of the great signs of, 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 of good teaching is when it provokes questions. And so Cameron got in the car one Wednesday night. He said, Daddy, how do you know what in the book of Revelation is meant to be taken figuratively? And how do you know what's meant to be taken literally? And I said, Son, I, I don't really know. But I know you need to keep this in mind. Here's what the book of Revelation teaches us. It teaches us these two things. It teaches us, number one, that no matter how bad it gets on earth, 
No matter the wars and the rumors of wars and the earthquakes and the wildfires and the pestilence, it doesn't matter about whether it's the COVID or riots in the street or whatever, no matter how bad it gets on earth, the book of Revelation teaches us that Jesus still has every bit of it under control. It is not out of control. You may be out of control. The government may be out of control. Society may be out of control. But he still has every bit of it under his control. And the second thing that it teaches us is that when it's all said and done and it's all wrapped up with a nice ribbon on it, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. It's all going to land on its feet just like it's supposed to. That's what the book of Revelation is. Are we wrong to look into the book of Revelation and try to find out about the tribulation period? No, no. Are we wrong to look into Revelation and try to understand the beast and the Antichrist and all of those things? No, but this is not a book that's a revelation of the Antichrist. It's a book that's the revelation of the Christ. The book of Revelation is not bad news. The book of Revelation is good news. So how he, when he saw him was important, how he saw him was important, and where he saw him was important. He saw him standing in what at first glance looked like the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. But it couldn't have been that because by this point the temple had been destroyed. But we know that when Moses built originally the tabernacle that was the model for the temple, when he built it in the wilderness, that God told him to build it according to a heavenly pattern. So the earthly temple was constructed like the dwelling place of God. And so he sees Jesus not in a temple made with hands, but a heavenly temple. And in that temple in Jerusalem, in the holy place, the holy of holies behind the veil, had the Ark of the Covenant. It had, it had the, the, the Ten Commandments in that golden box and the, and the similitude of angels stretching their wings across there. But in the holy place where the priest would minister, there was the table of showbread, there was the, uh, there was the altar of incense, and then there was the seven-branched golden candelabra, we would call it, but it was really a lampstand. They didn't have wax candles. And he sees Jesus standing at this golden seven-branch lampstand. And then Jesus tells him what those represent. He said, every one of these lamps is one of the churches in Asia. In other words, where he sees the resurrected Jesus, the glorified, not only resurrected, the glorified Jesus, where he sees him standing is in the midst of his church. There's a lot of things going on in church today that I don't understand, I don't get. 
And it's amazing. There are churches that have absolutely apostatized. They've stepped away from God and the Scripture. There's a church in Canada that was so glad when they found out they could keep their pastor and she wasn't dismissed because, you know, a little thing like she was an atheist. Can you imagine that? A lot of things going on in the church. But can I tell you that I'm not talking about man's church. I'm talking about God's church. Jesus is still in the midst of the church. I won't take very long on this, but I think it's important for you to understand what he was doing there. Luke 19.44, Jesus is coming down the path from the Mount of Olives down to the Temple Mount, and he rounds the corner and sees in panoramic view, he sees the temple, and he breaks, he stops his own parade, he breaks out and weeps, and he weeps because they've missed the day of their visitation. That's what he says. And the word visitation there is the word episcope, and what it really means is inspection. Because in the Greek day and in the Roman day, the inspector general was one who would come from the capital city of Athens or of Rome to a colony that was in a foreign nation. Just like we were 13 colonies at one time of Great Britain. Where Paul was from, Tarsus, was a Roman colony in Asia Minor modern-day Turkey. So those colonies, no matter what was around them, no matter what kind of people and lifestyle and culture surrounded them, if they were a colony of Rome or a colony of Greece, they operated in their laws, in their manner, in their custom. They operated not like those people groups around them, but they operated according to the rules of the empire that they represented. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he said, I've come on an inspection to make sure you're living by kingdom rules. And they missed the day of their inspection. Episcopate, by the way, is where we get the word bishop from. I'm going to tell you that those who are called into the ministry, the five-fold ministry in the church. The Bible says the reason that we honor them is not because they're so special, but because it's their job to watch for our souls. The number one job that a pastor has is to make sure that the colony of the kingdom of heaven is playing by kingdom rules. I want the colony that's at 700 West Ward Street, Douglas, Georgia, to be a colony of heaven that lives by kingdom rules, don't you? But you see, listen, the pastors around this town, they're just under shepherds. They're just under inspectors. We're just junior inspectors. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 25. He is the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. Jesus is the chief inspector. 
Here's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners in this, in this earth, and we want our conduct to be honorable, verse 12, because we do not want to be ashamed. We want to be able to glorify God in the day of visitation. That at the end of this way, <laughs> there's another inspection. There's a last inspection that we're all going to have to stand before God and give an account of things done in this body. Jesus was in the church and he was there to give them a checkup. And out of seven letters, we only had two that passed their checkup. Out of seven churches. Jesus was in the middle of of his church. Now I'm concluded with the introduction, but the sermon ain't gonna take too long. This is the crux of what we're talking about. Not just when he saw him or how he saw him or where he, where he saw him, but why he saw him. For this, we have to go to chapter five. In chapter five, John is standing in heaven. And there is a confusion in heaven because God is sitting on the throne and on the throne he is holding a scroll that has been sealed with seven seals. And the Bible says that that scroll had writing on the inside and on the outside. Now they tell me that in that day when a person had a, a lien against their property, an indebtedness, that they would write all of the debts, all of the liens, all of the mortgage holders, they would write it on the outside of the scroll so that when they were looking through the records they could find, it was hard to file scrolls, they could easily find by reading the outside, I believe. That this scroll that's in the hand of God is the title deed to planet earth. And they said we couldn't find it. And nobody on the earth could do it. Adam couldn't do it. Noah couldn't do it. None of the prophets could do it. Isaiah couldn't do it. Jeremiah couldn't do it. None of the kings could do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. None of the judges could do it. There was no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth that could pay the debts. Nobody that was worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of God and loose the seals and open up and pay the debt and set the world free. And John said, when I saw that, I broke down and squalled like a whipped child. Because John knew that unless somebody was found worthy to loose the seals, the world and its inhabitants 
were doomed to roll on and on and on in ignorance and poverty and sickness and death and disease and war. That all of these things that come on the earth were just going to roll on and on and on again unless somebody could loose it, somebody could pay it. Somebody was worthy. And an angel said to him, John, weep not. We found somebody. The line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he is worthy to take the book and loose the seals thereof. You know why we call him the line of Judah? When Jacob was dying, leaning on his staff, he blessed his sons and he came to Judah and he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. And because of that, the lion became the symbol of the tribe of Judah. And whenever all of Israel would go out in its battles array against the enemy, Judah would always go first. And I'm told that on their ensign, the flag, the banner of Judah, there was embroidered a picture of a lion. And as long as they were in battle and they could look and see that that lion was still flying on that flag, they knew the battle was still in hand. And I'm going to tell you, no matter how dark the battle gets, no matter how much the enemy encroaches on our soul, as long as we can look into heaven and see that the line of the tribe of Judah is still prevailing, we know that the battle is still the Lord's and it's still in His hand. Go ahead, give him a hand clap of praise. Amen. So John dried his eyes. He thought, must have, thought I've got to get a look at this line of the tribe of Judah. I could see him as he stretches his eyes and cranes his neck to look to see the mighty line of the tribe of Judah who is worthy to open the scroll. And John said, when I looked to see the line of the tribe of Judah, I saw that same Lamb of God that I saw walking on the shores of Jordan. I saw a Lamb of God that had been slain, as it were, from the foundations of the world. One of the most precious scriptures in the Word of God to me is found in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus has ascended to heaven, and they're looking longingly up into heaven watching him go. And two men in white shining garments stood by him and said, Why are you standing gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that you see going away in like manner shall come again. Larry, I used to, listen, the book of Revelation at one time was 
off limits to me because I didn't understand it. And it was so scary. And early in my relationship with the Lord, even early in my ministry, people would sing about, preach about, talk about the coming of the Lord. And that was so beyond my ability to wrap my mind around it that it was fearful to me. But when I heard that the one that's coming is the same one that took the little children up on his knee and placed his hand on their head and blessed them. The same one that looked at the woman taken in the very act of adultery and said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. The same one that reached out his hand and touched and cleansed the leper. The same one who prayed when they were nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. When I realized that's the one that's coming. It's not the fanfare, it's not the splitting skies, it's not any of that. It's the one that's coming. Listen, we've got an ailment in our day when it comes to weddings. Because weddings have become, for many people, a grown-up prom. It's all about the flower. Anymore, it's not even about the way the church is decorated. Anymore, the ceremony is just, just kind of bland. It's what kind of party you can throw after the ceremony. All the money spent on the reception now. Grown-up prom. I've even heard preachers advise couples and look at the man and say, you know this is her day. You're just window dressing. I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't marry a woman that thought I was window dressing at the wedding. I'll just go ahead and be honest with you. I wouldn't marry one that was more concerned about everybody looking at her than she was who waiting on the, at the end of the aisle. Your wedding's not about everybody else gazing on. It's about those two that are committing their lives to each other in the covenant, the bond of holy matrimony before God. It's, it's a sacred occasion. And it's the one waiting at the end of the aisle that ought to matter. And I'm going to tell you, there may be people out there that all of the trappings of the Lord coming is what just fascinates them. It just, they just get preoccupied with all of the trappings and all of the things that are going to go on heaven and all the things that are going to go on earth. But I'm going to tell you what excites me. It's the one that's coming that I want to see. It's the one that when I was a five-year-old boy took me in his arms and entered into my heart and saved me and has been my caretaker and my God and my brother and my father and my Savior and my Lord and my best friend all these years. It's whose comings who I want to see. And can I help you with some good news? The Bible says when that happens, and Jesus takes that scroll, and the rest of the book of Revelation 
is about him peeling those seals off one by one. That's all that the book of Revelation is saying is what happens when he takes that scroll and starts peeling back those seals. But you know what the Bible says? It says that all of heaven began to sing to that lamb that was slain and said, you're worthy to take the scroll. You're worthy to open the seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And we shall reign on the earth. Please hear me. God is not indifferent to your present suffering. But can I tell you, your hope is not, even though, thank God, He's promised healing. Thank God that's a provision that God gives us. But your hope is not whether or not He heals your body. It's not whether or not you get a better job. It's not whether or not He changes your present circumstances. Your hope is eternal. That's what we're looking for. I know that there was a fellow that wrote a book and sold a, sold a whole boatload full of them called Your Best Life Now. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, my best life is not now. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue and the angels beckon me to heaven's open door and I can't feel a home in this world anymore. And we're going to rule and reign with him. Now I know it's easy to say, now preacher, you're talking about the sweet by and by, but what about the bitter here and now? Well, there was a fellow that answered that question better than I can. He said it this way. My heart can sing when I pause to remember a heartache here is but a stepping stone along the trail that's winding always upward. This troubled world is not my final home. Listen, the things of earth, they're going to dim and lose their value when we recall. They're only borrowed for a while. And listen to this, and the things of this earth that often cause my heart to tremble, remembered there will only Bring a smile, but until then, my heart will go on singing. And until then, with joy I'll carry on until the day my eyes behold that city 
until the day God calls me home. Stand, and if you know it, sing it with me. But until then, my heart will go on singing. And until then, with joy I'll carry on until the day. My eyes behold that city until the day God calls us home.